0: Are you up here, Shane, or Shane already? Yes. Cool. And all the rest of the kids are coming on up. I'm back. Very cool. Well, I saw you, didn't I, wearing a costume this week? And I saw you wearing a costume this That's week. I did. I was at the school, at the carnival. Did you guys wear any costumes at all this week? Um, my costume was kind of... I couldn't see out of it, so I took it off. You couldn't see out of it, so you had to take it off? Yeah. One of my grandsons had the same problem. He had a big costume that... He, he loved his costume, but then when he tried to move around in it, it was kind of hard, so he had to take it off because it wasn't as easy to walk around him. You know what? When I was a kid, we used to get dressed up in costumes for, for the Halloween time, and sometimes we would get dressed up in fun things, and sometimes we'd get dressed up in scary things. How many of you guys like to get scared? Do you guys like to be scared? You do, Audrey. You know, one time I got so scared I almost wet myself. Actually, I did wet myself. It was crazy. It was so, so bad. We were at my house. It wasn't Halloween; it was just at my house. My mom and dad had gone out to, the, to, to dinner, and she had they, my mom and dad had left us with a babysitter. I don't remember her name, but she was like 16 years old, and she lived right next door to us. And she was in our living room with all of us kids, and she had turned off all the lights. And she had lit a candle, and she was telling us spooky stories. And one at one point I said, wouldn't it be scary if... Somebody looked in that window and we saw... Because our windows were way high up off the ground. It would be hard for anybody to actually look in our window. Well, she was telling the scary stories. And what we didn't know was her brother who lived with her next door. He got on his friend's shoulder and looked in the window. (laughs) And she was telling the scary story and I was scared. And I looked over and I saw this face in the window and I went... I jumped up and I went, ah! and I peed on the floor. I got so scared. See, sometimes we like to be scared, but sometimes it's not good to be scared. But I want to tell you a story out of the Bible where some people thought they saw a ghost and they were scared. And the ghost that they thought they saw wasn't a ghost. And he proved it. And I'll show you what this story says. It's such a cool story. It's a story that it's a ghost story out of the Bible, but it's not a ghost story because it wasn't really a ghost. Jesus had died on the cross. Jesus had been taken down off of the cross. And they wrapped his body up in a special cloth. And they carried his body into the, the grave, little cave that they laid his body down in. And they rolled a big rock in front of the cave opening so that no one could get in and no one could get out. And three days passed from the time of Jesus's dying. And that morning, the ladies went to the graveyard to try and see if they could... To help prepare Jesus's body because they hadn't had time when he had died. And when they got there, the grave was open and the body wasn't there. And they were telling people, he's not here anymore. He's alive. He's alive. Well, later on that night, all of Jesus's friends, his disciples, they were in this room in the upper floor of a house and they had the doors locked. You know why? Because they were afraid because they, the, the, the leaders of their community had killed Jesus and they were afraid they were going to come and get them too. And they were scared and they were sitting in the house and they were praying and they were going, go, Oh God, please protect us. Take care of us. Please protect us. Please take care of us. Oh God. Oh God. Please. We're so scared. And guess what happened? It said Jesus stood right there next to them in the room and said, hi, shalom, peace to you. And you know what it says? They went, ah, 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 it's a ghost. It's a ghost. They they truly thought, why? Why did they think he was a ghost? Because he's dead. He was dead. They saw him get dead. But they thought it was a good. Literally it said they were scared and frightened and they thought they were seeing a ghost. When it isn't a ghost, then he, he, why is his body not there? It's because he put his soul back into the body. Because he's alive now, that's yeah. right. But, but see, they he, had never he, ever met anybody that could do that before. Yeah, but since... The- Jesus is Jesus. He could put his soul back into his body. Exactly. And they said he and Jesus said to them, Why are you so scared? Don't you believe in your hearts? See, look, here's my hands. And he showed them where the nails had gone in. And he said, Look at my feet. Here, see this is where the spear went in my side. This is me. Touch me. I'm not a ghost. And he said, I have flesh, I have bones, I don't, I'm not a ghost. Because he put his soul back into his body. And it said, and when he had said this to them, and showed them his hands and his feet, they were still scared, but they were excited, and believing, maybe, and they were still afraid. And he went, ah, look, do you guys have anything to eat? And they said, well, yeah. And he said, can you give me some fish? And so he, they gave him a piece of fish and he <laughs> ate it. And he looked at it and he said, do ghosts eat food? And they went, no. He said, I'm not a ghost. I'm real. I'm alive. My father made me alive again. You don't have to be afraid anymore. God made you put your soul back into his body. Exactly. And this is what he said. You saw me die. You saw my body get wrapped up. You saw my body get put into a grave. And now you are seeing my resurrected body and you can know that I am alive. And it's now your job. This is what he said. It is now your job to tell people about what you've seen because I'm going to be with the father. It's now your job to tell people that I'm alive again. Isn't that a cool ghost story out of the Bible? Yeah. But it's not a ghost story. It's not a ghost story. God just put his soul back into his body. Exactly. Isn't that cool, though? Because God's a good God. God is a good God. So he just put his soul back into his body. Praise God. Let's pray. Jesus, help these kids and help all of us mm-hmm. to know Without question, the truth of this story and help us to speak it. When people are talking about ghosts and goblins and zombies and people coming back from the dead, let's tell them the real story of what it really means to come back from the dead. That Jesus is alive. He's not dead. He's not a ghost. He's not a zombie. He's alive because God made him alive. We give you praise, Lord. We give you thanks. We give you honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, you guys can go, and I'm going to come back up and sit down. We are now going to turn our attention to 1 Samuel chapter 26. So, if you will take your Bibles... And turn to 1 Samuel chapter 26. I'm going to quickly read this for us. It's a, it's a lengthy thing, but it's important that we read it and understand what's been happening. So, 1 Samuel chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to King Saul at Gibeah, and they said, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hackelah, which is on the east of Jeshaman? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, With 3000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph and Saul encamped on the hill of Hakala, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul had came, came, that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped, and David saw the place where Saul was laying asleep with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of the army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was completely encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around uh, King Saul. And then Abishai turned to David and said, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now, please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I'll not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, don't destroy him for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let's go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from skull from Saul's head and they went away. No man saw it, knew about it. None of them awoke, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill. And with a great space between them, David called out to the army, to Abner specifically, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore, let my lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If it is the lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea, like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I've sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold. As your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. Mm Does this sound familiar? Didn't we just read this two weeks ago? Not this, but it's a similar a similar story. Well, you know, scholars, depending on who you listen to, some scholars say oh, it's just the same story, different different words, same story. There's there's too many differences in this to be the same story. But as I was when, as I was preparing my heart for this, I started reading this early in the week. I I literally read it Monday. My intent was to read it every single day. I didn't read it every single day, but I I started early in the week. And my very first thought, as silly as this sounds, my very first thought as I was starting to reflect on this was why in the world does David keep doing what he does? Is he an idiot or what? And the verse that came to mind was Proverbs 26.11. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who continually repeats his folly. And I couldn't get that thought out of my head. Why is David always going back and doing the same thing? He always, always goes up to Saul, does something, shows he's a loyal servant, and then steps back. And then calls out and says, I'm a loyal servant, why do you keep helping me? And Saul goes, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then nothing changes. (laughs) We'll talk about that. As I started reading scholars this week, it was intriguing to me that one of the scholars quoted Proverbs 26.11 and said, that idiot keeps doing the same thing over and over again. He keeps repeating his following just like a dog that returns to its vomit. Why does King Saul continue to do that? And I went, wait a minute, that's not my thought. King Saul? And the more I looked at it, the more I realized that it really is King Saul that keeps doing it. The stupid thing, the folly. He's the fool in this story, not not David. Now, going back months, if you remember when we first started looking at these characters, I shared with you my personal opinion is that King Saul struggled with mental illness. So is it fair to call him a fool? I don't know. But the reality is he continues, continues to fall through the same patterns over and over again. He hates David. He tries to kill David. Then he's sorry that he tried to kill David and he apologizes. and says, come back to me. I promise I won't do it ever again. And then something happens and he gets angry again and he tr- strikes out and tries to kill David. And then uh, over and over, and then he lashes out at his son because his son's being uh, unfaithful. And it's just this whole mishmash and this is just this brokenness in King Saul's brain and the way that he responds to the world and the way that he continues to Cause harm to David to the point now where David is literally like, you are causing me to have to leave my own people. I'm going to die away from the land of God. I'm not even going to be able to worship because in their mind, they had to go to God's place of worship. Another thing that you need to know that's not readily available, it's readily available, but it's not readily in our brain when he, when David said, who's going to go with me? He he was talking to two guys. One was Ahimelech, the Hittite. We don't know who that guy is. He's just a guy. But Abishai, this is the one I want to focus on because he's the one that actually went down into the camp with David. Who is Abishai? What does it say about him? It says, verse 7, Abishai, excuse me, verse uh, 6. Um, David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother Abishai, Joab's brother. Who is Joab? He becomes a general in King David's army. But we have an even further identifier. It says Joab's brother Abishai, who is the son of Zariah. Who is Zariah? Anybody know? Turn a couple pages over to First Chronicles. First Chronicles, chapter two. First Chronicles, chapter two, verses 12 through 16. This chapter in Second Chronicles starts out. It's titled the genealogy of David. So let's look at chapter two, verse 12 and following. Boaz, Remember who Boaz was? He's the guy that married Ruth in the story of the book of Ruth. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of David. Remember the story where Samuel went to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. He was actually going to anoint David king. And he went to Jesse's household and he said, present to me your sons. And then Jesse's sons all came forward and Jesse and, De- and Samuel kept saying, no, not this one. The Lord kept saying, not this one, not this one, not this one. So look at verse 13 of Second Chronicles. This says, Jesse fathered Eliab, the firstborn, Abinadab, the second, Shemaiah, the third, Nathaniel, the fourth, Radai, the fifth, Ozan, the sixth and David, the seventh. And then verse 16, and their sisters were Zariah and Abigail. And the sons of Zariah Zariah were Abishai, Joab, and Asahel three. So going back now to 1 Samuel chapter 26, where David is talking to Ahimelech and Abishai. And he says, Who will go with me into the camp? And Abishai, his nephew, says, I will. Now, we don't know how old David was at this point. We don't know how old Abishai was at this point. It's possible that it could have been an uncle and a nephew who were both 25 years old. Because we're not told where Zariah fell in the family order. We're just told that Zariah was a sister to David and that one of her sons was Abishai. And that's who this guy is. Because it says right in verse six of chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zariah. So we know without question, based on comparing Chronicles and Samuel, this is David the uncle and Abishai the nephew who are going to crawl into the camp. Now, same story, second verse, same song, second verse, if you will. Okay, two weeks ago, we read about Saul having to go to the bathroom, goes into the cave. David happens to be hiding in the cave with his guys. David crawls up, cuts off a corner. Then Dave leaves of the cloak. Dave, then Saul leaves and David comes out and goes, oh, king, oh, king, I'm not against you here. I prove I, I could have killed you, but I didn't. Same basic situation. David and Abbasai crawl into the camp. God has done a supernatural thing and caused all of the people of the camp to be in a deep sleep. This term deep sleep, you'll find it a couple of times in the Old Testament. The very first time you find it is when God put Adam into a deep sleep so that he could remove a rib so that he could fashion Eve out of that rib. Another time that God causes a deep sleep is when Abram, Goes into a deep sleep and then God appears as a flaming pot to do the covenant. So there's these times where God supernaturally causes sleep in the human that's in the story. And that's this is one of those times where God caused the entire camp, all 3,000 men and the king to be in a dead sleep so that David and, and Abishai could crawl in. They get to where Saul is sleeping in the very center of the camp. It literally said Abner, the general of the army, was sleeping next to the king. And then the entire 3,000 people were around the king. So the king is asleep and he's got his spear in the ground, stuck in the ground right by his head and a jug of water. The spear is a symbol in the Middle East of that time of the king of the leader, of the one that's in charge. This is a symbol of his power. Scholars also suggested it might very well be the very spear that Saul tried to throw, I mean, that threw at David, trying to kill him a couple of times. We don't know that for a fact, but it's likely that it is. Regardless of what happens is, David gets in there, Abishai goes, let's kill him, and he's like, no, 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 it's not ours to do. (laughs) They take it and they leave. But look at what David says as he's instructing. He's doing a spiritual um, formation for his nephew. Mm -hmm. He says in verse eight, Abishai says to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear. I'll not strike him twice. Verse nine, David says to his nephew, Abishai, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? Then he said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him or his day will come to die or he will go down into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But let's take the spear that is at his head in the jar and then let's go. And then the confrontation And we just read it. We don't have to reread it. But I want to look at this idea of David going going back and going back and going back and going back and going back, even though he's being abused even though he's being harmed, even though he's being threatened, why does he do this? You said it was the human condition. What were you going to say? What were you going to say? I was thinking, I mean, he's just willing to trust. He knows it's wrong to take Saul's life. So he just keeps giving an opportunity for there to be a change in Saul's Yes, yes. Yeah. I think for me, and again, this is as, I, as I've been studying it, and, and you you don't have the benefit of all the different books that I was reading. Um, the people of Israel, and I don't want to get into anything political, but we're going to talk a little bit of political right now. The people of Israel have a strong affinity for being them. In the land. Okay? This was the land of the promise of God. If you go back into the ancient history, God called Abram and his father actually out of where they were living and they then, God was leading them to go to the promised land. And then, then Abram's father actually got stuck in a place and then finally God called Abram and his wife Sarai out of there and then Lot joined them and they ended up in the promised land. Well, what is the promised land? God said to Abram, I am going to create from you a people so great and so vast that they are numberless as if the sands of the, of the seashore could be numbered. That's how great you are going to become as a nation. And this land... Is going to be yours. It is a gift from me. To your people. Abram didn't live to see that. Neither did Jacob. Neither neither did Reuben. Excuse me. Neither did Isaac live to see that. But the grandson of Abraham. Jacob did live to see. Well. Somewhat lived to see it. Because if you recall in the story. Joseph one of the sons of Jacob was then sent to Egypt because his brothers sold him into slavery. But God did it to bring about a restoration or, or a, 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 a rescue because God saw something bad was coming down the pike. All of the people of Israel literally came, got up and left the promised land and went to Egypt because of a famine and were living in the land of Goshen where there was a lot of good and it was easy to live there. So they continued to live there. For hundreds of years. They never went back. And it ended up that they got enslaved. By the king of Egypt. The Pharaoh. So God had to rescue them out of the king's hands. And again. God said to their leader Moses. I am sending you back to the land. That I promised to your forefather. So the entire. Israelite mindset. The entire Jewish mindset. Is. Is. We are tied to this land by promise of God. And then after, <coughs> excuse me, after the time of King David and King Solomon and all of the other kings, there was the, the, the great dispersion that happened they, because they were disobedient. God cast them out for 70 some years, but then they brought them back. But then world things happened and things happened and things happened. And then finally, in the time of Jesus, during the Roman Empire in the year A.D. 70, finally, the land of Israel was just decimated, destroyed. And the the people of Israel got scattered everywhere and there was no longer a nation. So from A.D. 70 until 1947, 1900 years There was no nation of Israel, but in 1947, God fulfilled prophecy and brought the people back to the land of the promise. And they are now living out most of the prophecies that are in the book that deal with the land. So there's this mindset among Jewish people that they are people of the land. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Now, let's go back to it to what David said in 1 Samuel chapter 26. David said in verse 17, It is my voice, my Lord, O king. And he said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now let thou therefore let the Lord, my Lord, the king, hear the words of his servant. If the Lord, if it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For here's the word, they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord. David loves God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind, with all of his strength. And where do you worship God in David's day? Where the Ark of the Covenant is located. It's tied to a location. And David is being kept from active worship of God because of this thing that's going on between him and Saul. He can't safely go to worship because these people won't let him. He's like, what have I done? Why is this happening? All I want to do is live in peace and all you keep doing is coming at me over and over and over and, and I've proven myself faithful to you and loyal to you and I have never given you any cause. Why do you keep doing this to me? And Saul again. Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, please forgive me. Oh, you're right. I'm wrong. We didn't read it, but look at chapter 27, verse 1. After this event happens, verse 1 of chapter 27 says, Then David said in his heart, Now I'm just going to perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should just escape and go to the land of the Philistines. Then maybe Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I'll escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and his 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maach, the king of Gath. He went to live in the land of their enemies, away from the land, away from his people, away from his home, away from his father's house, away from his opportunity to worship his God, because he can't find peace otherwise. But what is David's response every single Time, He says, I will not lay a finger against the Lord's anointed. Mm -hmm. Why? What did he say to Abishai? Because if I do, I will not remain guiltless. Now, he is in the right. He didn't do anything wrong. He is not... A defector. He is not a rebellious person. He is not trying to harm Saul. But he refuses to touch the Lord's anointed. Because he perceives if he does. He will incur guilt on himself. And he then says. If God has something against me. I'll offer a sacrifice. But if these people keep inciting you against me. King, Let the curses be on them. He's trying to live an honorable, upright life in the face of constant, constant, constant broken relationship. And the brokenness of this human being is causing negative on his life. Many years ago, early, early, early in my time here, the Two Rivers Community Church at the Nazarene had a yellow-lighted sign that was out on the front of our property it was one of those things where you would change out the letters and we had some people who were very faithful in making sure that we always had good scripture verses up there that fit on the sign with the amount of letters that we had because you only have so many e's and so many m's and had to kind of make well then they got tired of doing it so it fell to the pastor to do it and and I got tired because the stupid sign was old and damaged and so the, the, the racks wouldn't hold the letters properly. So I went down to Fairbanks Paint and Glass and I bought some sheets of really thin Lexan and cut them into strips so that I made pockets. And I could put the letters in, in as a sentence and then seal it and go out there in the cold and just slide it in and then slide it in. So I'd assemble it in the warmth of the church and go out and then slide it in and then we'd have it. Well, then we had people in our community who thought it was funny to mix up all the letters. Mm -hmm. And I literally was in my home one day when the director of the Fairbanks Rescue Mission, who was driving out to Three Bears Camp with a group of people from the rescue mission, stopped in our parking lot and came running up and knocking on the door. Have you seen your sign? What are you talking about? You need to go look at the sign. I can't say those words. (laughs) So I went out and had to take the words down. Uh, the, the cleanest that they ever did was, we eat porpoise fetuses. And I would take it down. And then they got where they would take the signs down and the letters down and break them into pieces and just drop them into the snow right at the base of the sign. Do you know we spent hundreds of dollars buying new letters? And I would spend hours pouring through scripture or other expressions trying to come up with things that would work. And then I would put the thing out there and somebody would mess up. And again, somebody came and knocked on the door. And it was at night this time. And I said, oh, okay, I'll go check it. And they drove off and I went out there. And again, it was like that. And I was just so angry and I stood out there on that property and I began to literally call down curses I am a man of God I am a child of God I have the authority of Christ and I am a minister in the gospel and I was calling down curses on these vandals God damn them God break them God harm them and you know what the Holy Spirit said Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. And so I had to stop right then and there. And he had me read. It comes out of Romans chapter 12. He had me read all eight verses. Right there, out there. And I was reading it with tears streaming down my face. Bless those who persecute you. met me out there Mm -hmm. and said, you're messing up, son. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're harassing you. Yeah, they're vandalizing you. Yeah, they're costing your church money. Yeah, they're angering you and they're frustrating you. Mm -hmm. But it is not yours to curse. It is not yours to do what you're doing. And in reality, you're letting the enemy of your soul win. You need to do what is right. I see the same thing in David here. Before I do, there's one other thing I need to tell you. I have a friend who... um, attends meetings in town. And every so often this friend will find a piece of literature at one of the meetings and they'll take it home and read it. And if they find it helpful for them, they will then bring it to me and say, Pastor, I I recommend that you read this and maybe even make it available to members of the congregation. And uh, this week they came And didn't say anything. They just dropped something off on the end table right by my recliner in my office. And my heart was, I was just going to take it and put it on the shelf and I was going to read it later. But yesterday afternoon, God said, "Mm, you need to read this one. Okay. I don't know why, but okay. So I did. And most of it was just stories of people struggling with things in their life. It's it's from a a group called Al-Anon. Have you ever heard of Al-Anon? This is for family members who have a member in their house who's an alcoholic. So this is a, a, a group of people that support each other and love each other as they go through the struggle of dealing with a family member who has got an addiction. And in one of the little essays that was in this magazine that I was reading yesterday... I learned something I had never heard before. In all the years, I mean, I have a background in, th- in counseling. In all the years I have dealt with Alcoholics Anonymous and 12-step program, I've heard of Al-Anon, but I don't know much about it. But there's this one thing that I learned from this one essay, and that's this. Craig, there's a slide I, ask, I put in the sermon area. They have what's called the three C's of Al-Anon. The three C's. I didn't cause it. I can't control it, and I can't cure it. See, family members who have someone that they love, who's addicted to alcohol, and that person is on a downward path, and they have spent years trying to fix, trying to get help, trying to make right, trying and owning Because if I did something differently, maybe they wouldn't struggle. If I, then they, and they finally have to come to it for their own health, for their own well-being. They have to come to the point where they can own these three statements. I didn't cause my loved one's addiction. I can't control my loved one's addiction. And I can't cure my loved one's addiction. And the Lord whispered to me as I was reading that, Bob, that works in this story too. Mm -hmm. David didn't cause the situation he was in. And David certainly can't control the situation. He can control how he responds within the situation. But he can't control what's going on because every time Saul gets some kind of stimulus from some place, all of a sudden Saul goes into a manic state or, or something in a rage and he begins harassing David to the point of David's death and David feels literally like he's about to die. And there's absolutely nothing David can do To fix it, to make it go away, to cure it. And what we just read in those first two verses of chapter 27 Mm -hmm. is David coming to this. You know what? I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave my home. I don't want to leave my family. I don't want to leave my homeland. I don't want to leave my dear friend, Jonathan. I don't want to leave my opportunity for worshiping God. But if I continue to stay here, what's going to end up happening is I'm going to end up dead because he's not going to stop. There is nothing I can do to make him stop. This is going to have to be God. And I have 600 people with me. Cuz look at this situation folks. David and 600 people were surrounded by Saul and 3000 people. That was a 5 to 1 ratio against. The only reason he wasn't already dead was because God had kept him safe. And David's like, I I'm just done. I I can't do it anymore. And he's had to, he literally, we'll talk, we'll look at it next week. He leaves because he just can't fight it anymore. Because every time he tries to fight it, he still has to keep his integrity intact. He still has to continue to say, I trust God. I trust God. I trust God. I don't know how it's going to work, but I trust God. King Saul is broken. King Saul's brain doesn't work. As a result, King Saul uses his great, his power to literally threaten David and his loved ones. David has had to hide his parents in Moab. David is hiding with 600 other people, hiding from place to place to place in the wilderness, just trying to find some peace. And finally, he's like, we just can't stay anymore. We just, because we can't fix this. This is beyond us. We just have to trust God in his timing. Because he said, he said to Abishai, he'll either die because it's his time or he'll die because God takes him out or he'll die because he's in battle. But it is not mine to decide. I have to just trust that God is in charge. And I have to trust that God is going to take care of us. But at the same time, I got to stop or at least do everything in my power to negate what's going on. And so he leaves. It's not what he wanted. It's not what he would have chosen. (sighs) But he recognizes that it's beyond his control. And the only thing he can do to keep himself and these 600 guys safe Is to just get out of Saul's way. Reality is, this is the very last time David and Saul actually see each other. This is the last time they talk to each other before Saul dies. David doesn't know that. All he knows is that every stinking time, Saul tries to kill him. Every stinking time. And so David has to make a choice. It's not an easy one. But he has to make a choice for his own well-being and for the well-being of the people he's responsible for. Mm -hmm. To get out. It's a hard thing. Because the reality is, like you said, it is the human condition. There are people in our lives. People you know. Who face that kind of stuff on a daily basis in your job. You see it all the time. When you were running the door, you saw it all the time. As a pastor, I see it all the time. There are people in our community who are living with people who are stuck in addiction. People who are mentally ill. People who are just verbally and physically abusive. And we feel stymied at times on how to respond and what we can do. Well, we'll pray. And I'm, a, I'm not negating prayer. Believe me, I'm not negating prayer. But there are times maybe when you need to help them pack. You need to come alongside them and say, I will help you get safety. And that's the Christ-like thing to do. So I would encourage you. Number one, if you're in that situation where you feel threatened or harmed or constantly going through this garbage, maybe it's time for you to reach out and say help to somebody. And number two, if you know someone who's going through it. I'm not saying don't trust God. David trusted God through all of this. But at the same time, David had to take action to protect the people that he was responsible for. And so again, if you see somebody that's in a situation like this, maybe you need to come alongside them and speak words to them of wisdom, encouragement, love, and give them an opportunity just to talk. Most definitely pray for them and with them. But unfortunately, this is the nature of the human condition. This is the world in which we live. And if you read the book of Revelation and the book of Daniel, it's only going to get worse. Because it literally says in the book of Revelation that children will turn against parents. Parents will turn against their children. Houses will be destroyed because everyone will be seeking their own self, their own benefit and throwing everyone else out. Just to make sure I'm okay. That's exactly the story we're looking at right now in David's life. It's exactly what we, what I read in these, in this pamphlet about these people that are struggling with families, members that are addicted and violent and angry and... Anyway, it's a hard word, but it's an important word. And I encourage you, I encourage you, please, If you're not, if you're the one that knows someone, then please come alongside them. Don't just put your head in the sand and say, I I don't want to get involved. Come alongside these people. Be Christ to them. Reach out to them. Let's pray. Father God, it's hard when things aren't beautiful and rosy. It's hard to know how to step in without causing harm. It's hard to know the timing. It's hard to know if it'll be received well. But at the same time, Lord, you call us to love. You call us to be peacemakers. You call us to bring truth. And sometimes those words of love and peace and truth are hard to say. So, God, I ask that you would please empower us, give us wisdom, give us discernment, and help us to have the courage to do the right thing at the right time under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And give you praise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.